0: Hey, Nick, we have some exciting news to announce regarding um, our friends over at the OBG Project.
1: The OBG Project folks have now put all of OBG first within the OBG resident core. So you get OBG first for your entire OBGYN residency. How incredible is that, Faye?
0: Yeah, that sounds really great. And just to remind you guys, the resident core over at the OBG project is completely free. All you have to do is sign up and prove that you're a resident. And then you'll get not only OBG first, but also the OBG L&D ebook, as well as excellent curricula, as you know, as well as self-test quizzes and things like that for your studying.
1: Yeah, that's over a $198 per year value. So if you are interested in getting this free educational resource, head over to our website, creogservercoffee.com, check out the sidebar, get signed up for the OBG Resident Core, and by extension, OBG First, the OBG LD ebook, all of this awesome stuff, absolutely free, four years of residency.
0: Welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is
1: Creogs Over over coffee. Coffee.
0: So guys, today we are back at it again with more important studies um, in OBGYN. gyn So today we're gonna to be talking about the CHIPS trial. So I'm assuming that we're not talking about potato chips, Nick. So what are our learning objectives for today?
1: <laughs> no, no potato chips though. Now that you said that, I really kind of want some, um, but I'll have to wait till after we finish recording. Um, yeah. But for learning <laughs> objectives, we'll review the CHIPS trial um, and not the similarly named and similar concept CHAP trial, Um, That one was just released, and we'll do a podcast on that soon. Um, But we want you to know the CHIPS trial. We think this is another one of those that you should know as a resident. Um, We're going to understand to some degree why we do what we do, or in this case, what questions actually are still out there. And then we'll review some of how we're practicing now and actually the genesis for the CHAP trial again, which we'll talk about in that future episode. So the CHIPS trial, Faye, as we've learned, it has that cute title, The Control of Hypertension in Pregnancy Study. I think that's one of the better ones that we've seen, actually. Um, yeah. <laughs> but then the publication in the New England Journal of Medicine um, was Less Tight Versus Tight Control of Hypertension in Pregnancy. So let's start off, I guess, with some background information.
0: Yeah, so, you know, we always talk about when we do these studies, who did the study? and who published it. First of all, this was an open, multi-center, international randomized controlled trial, which is amazing, and it was coordinated by the University of British Columbia. So again, another Canadian trial. I know we've talked about some of these already. And it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2015, so actually quite a recent study. Um, and the study was done because, first of all, hypertension is common. I think we all know that as medical professionals, right? And at the time of this publication, it was estimated that hypertension affected ten percent of pregnancies, with one percent being cr- just chronic hypertension, five to six percent being gestational hypertension, and then two to three percent being, you know, more severe like preeclampsia. We also knew that at the time that, you know, treatment of blood pressure at specific thresholds had not really been well defined. So on one hand, using antihypertensives liberally and early might, effect, might help prevent maternal and fetal complications related to uncontrolled hypertension. So potentially you might avoid, you know, developing some type of hypertensive disorder in pregnancy. But on the other hand, we know that using antihypertensives could have their own consequences as shown in other smaller studies. So for example, making um, patients take large doses of antihypertensives, making their blood pressures drop, there's potentially um, some complications like fetal growth restriction. So the research question that we had with this study coming in is they wanted to compare tight versus less tight control of non-proteinuric, non-severe hypertension in pregnancy and see what the outcomes are. All right, Nick, so let's jump into methods. So who participated in this study and when was it done?
1: Yeah, so this study, again, was published in 2015, but the subjects were recruited from March 2009 to August 2012. um, And 95 sites in 16 countries enrolled at least one patient. So again, another trial on a massive international scale. The eligibility criteria for patients to be in the study were that they had to have non-severe non proteinuric pre-existing hypertension or gestational hypertension. And yes, you heard me correctly, they treated gestational hypertension as well. We'll talk more about that later. Um, They defined pre-existing hypertension as a diagnosis prior to 20 weeks and gestational hypertension as a diagnosis after 20 weeks. They actually used the diastolic blood pressure to define hypertension, and it was a diastolic pressure of 90 to 105 if the patient was not receiving some sort of therapy at the time of enrollment, or 85 to 105 if they were already on some sort of treatment. These enrollment blood pressures needed to be obtained at least four hours apart or at two consecutive outpatient visits with a second measurement taken within a week prior to randomization to their treatment arm. Both of the blood pressures needed to be elevated in order to be included in the trial. And then the eligibility criteria and ultimate randomization needed to have a live singleton fetus between 14 weeks and 33 weeks and six days. So they enrolled almost all the way up to 34 weeks. The exclusion criteria um, were predominantly related to trying to exclude Preeclampsia, so um, a systolic blood pressure of 160 or higher. But those patients could be included later if they got treated for that blood pressure and then ultimately met all of the other eligibility criteria. They were excluded if proteinuria was present, defined as 0.3 milligrams per day on a 24-hour, a P2C greater than 0.263, which is just oddly specific. Very specific. Um, or a dipstick of two plus or more. If they had used an ACE inhibitor at or after 14 weeks, they would be excluded from the trial. Um, and then other issues would be if they had a contraindication to either trial group because of pre-existing disease. And examples provided in the text of the paper included pre-gestational diabetes or renal disease. Um, multiple gestations, anomalies, or plans for a termination of pregnancy um, were also excluded, and then you couldn't participate in the trial more than once during the study period. Let's get into the nitty-gritty of how exactly they did this?
0: Yeah. So we established that this was a randomized control trial. So the randomization was done in blocks of two or four patients. Um, And again, because this was in so many different countries, they used a telephone line and pager system to help randomize these patients. It was a one-to-one ratio of less tight control, again, defined as this target diastolic blood pressure of 100 or lower versus tight control, meaning that they're targeting that diastolic blood pressure to be 85 or lower. So the control of the blood pressure was expected to be at that target level until delivery with a goal of between group difference of a diastolic blood pressure of five millimeters of mercury. Um, And the goal, again, was based on a pilot trial of the protocol. Ultimately, they made a recommendation for labetalol as the first choice drug to use. Um, And then drugs like ACE inhibitors, ARBs, red inhibitors, and atenolol were not permitted prior to delivery. So these medications, they said, we cannot use. No drugs were provided by the study. And so ultimately, it was left up to the physician's discretion of what they actually provided for their patients. So it really wasn't a testing of the drug, even though there was a primary recommendation. It was how tightly the blood pressures were controlled. Then they looked at blood pressure at subsequent prenatal visits, and these were obtained three times per visit. The average of the second and the third diastolic blood pressures obtained were considered to be that diastolic blood pressure for the visit, and that was what was used for a medicine targeting. So that meant that they would up titrate or down titrate the medicine based off of that target. The participants were also asked to keep a diary to record this info, as well as the medications and co-interventions, things like ultrasounds, clinic visit information, um, so that they also had that information. Adherence to this protocol was based on um, this quote-unquote clinically reasonable standard was assessed within four weeks of randomization. And it doesn't seem like the study, or the paper at least, totally elaborated on this, but it did follow to some degree blood pressure measurements in the patient's diary and the interventions listed so again trying to target that blood pressure of either group as much as they can and thereafter patients were seen on a schedule dictated by their doctor or midwife so after these you know 4 weeks they were seen based on however often they wanted uh, to be seen by their provider. A standardized questionnaire was then given to the patients at six weeks postpartum to identify post-discharge complications. Certainly, you know, this was a very difficult study to do. Um, But what were the primary outcomes and secondary outcomes that they were looking for with the study, Nick?
1: So primarily, as we've seen as a theme with many of these obstetric trials, we're looking at a composite of pregnancy loss, so miscarriage, ectopic, termination, stillbirth, or neonatal death, or some degree of high-level neonatal care, um, which they defined as, quote, greater than normal newborn care, for more than 48 hours through 28 days of life or discharge home, whichever of those two is later. So again, primary focused on neonatal fetal outcomes. Secondary outcomes for this paper were related to maternal outcomes and complications up to six weeks postpartum, and they focused on the most severe of these, so listed off a number of things like stroke, death, eclampsia, new onset blindness, uncontrolled hypertension, the use of inotropic agents or pulmonary edema or respiratory failure, myocardial ischemia infarction, so all of those things kind of implying like heart failure, um, hepatic dysfunction, hepatic hematoma or rupture, renal failure, and transfusion as kind of the primary things that they looked at. The outcomes were actually looked at by a committee. Um, And this committee was not aware of the group assignments, and they weren't involved in individual patient's care. So they actually took a look through the charts, took a look through the patient's care, and decided what outcomes were there, which is kind of a unique um, third-party approach to, to looking at complications in this trial. Um, and then additional outcomes analyzed include some things like fetal growth, newborn complications, and the incidence of severe hypertension defined as greater than 160 over 110 in the mother. Um, so, how many people actually ended up severe after they got randomized to tight versus less tight control? The last thing that I wanted to touch on in the methods was some what I'll call statistics interestingness. I don't know if that's the right <laughs> term, Faye. Um, but this trial had some analyses that we actually don't frequently see in randomized trials. Um, and there, basically they said that there were gonna be multiple levels of comparisons planned. And for this reason, the alpha level for significance, i.e. the, the p-value we're looking for, actually was gonna drop down to 0.046. For the intervention arms rather than our traditional 0.05. And then for secondary outcomes, because of all of the crisscrossing of analyses, there needed to be a P of 0.01 or less to be defined as significant. And then for those additional subsequent outcomes we talked about, there actually needed to be a P of less than 0.001. So again, a lot of things that's They try to define in the text of the paper, and I have to admit, I am not the most gifted, statistically-minded person. Um, If any of you listeners out there are super statistics brains, um, we'd love to hear from you about why some of these adjustments were made and to provide a little bit of an update. Um, Again, it has to do with the number of comparisons made. There were two interim analyses performed during the course of the trial to assure safety, Um, but I'm not sure we have a great way to explain it. But just when you hear us say that like, the p-value is not significant, there actually was a much higher threshold for significance in this trial. All right, so prefacing our results with that, Faye, let's talk through results.
0: Um, In terms of the participants, they actually recruited 1,030 eligible patients, 519 for the less tight group and 511 for that tight control group. And again, remember, they were targeting that um, diastolic blood pressure for the less tight to be 100 or lower, and then the tight control to be 85 or lower. So ultimately, uh, one site had to be excluded because of some concerns about data integrity. So ultimately, they got 497 in the less tight group and 490 in the tight control group. 6 patients were lost to follow-up or withdrew, and then 24 patients discontinued blood pressure treatment prior to delivery, but their data was included as part of the intention-to-treat analysis. And then 10 patients, five in each group, had incomplete data after they were lost to follow-up for the postpartum survey, and 21 were found to have been ineligible um, for one reason or another after they did data analysis. In terms of adhering to the treatment protocol in that clinically reasonable um, way, uh, it was slightly worse than the less tight control group where 76.6% adhered to the protocol versus the tight control group, which was 82%. And then when we look at the... Uh, The subjects overall, the baseline characteristics were overall very similar in terms of things like BMI, nulliparity, gestational age at randomization, gestational diabetes, smoking. Um, Twenty-five percent in each group had gestational hypertension, whereas seventy-five percent had chronic hypertension. So again, pretty similar. 16% in the less tight group and 12% of the tight control group had severe range blood pressures at some point prior to enrollment. Um, And this was only statistically a difference at P is equal to 0.049. So again, not technically statistically significant. 57% in each group were on antihypertensive treatment at enrollment. In terms of looking at the difference in blood pressure, in the less tight control group, on average, the blood pressure um, was higher by 5.8 millimeters of mercury systolic and 4.6 millimeters of mercury diastolic. So looking at it, you know, in the less tight control group, the systolic blood pressure was 138.8, versus 133.1 in the less tight control group. This was statistically significant. And then looking at the diastolic blood pressure, it was 89.9 in that less tight control group versus 85.3 in the tightly controlled group. And again, this was statistically significantly different. Antihypertensive medications were taken by fewer patients in the less tight control group after randomization, which makes sense. Um, And this continued after delivery. So after delivery, it was 65.5% versus 78.3%. As expected, labetalol was the most commonly used agent since it was the first line treatment that uh, the study recommended. Um, and it was the same in both groups, 68.9% versus 68.8%. All right, next. so that's a lot of comparisons of the actual subject. So let's actually get onto the outcomes. What did they actually find?
1: Yeah, so maybe a little bit anticlimactic, I'll preface. Uh, but for our primary outcome in terms of that neonatal composite index, there was no difference. And then when we parse it out and look at some of those things secondarily, there were no significant differences with respects to other perinatal outcomes for newborns, such as uh, small for gestational age at less than a 10th or less than a third percentile or any rates of respiratory complications. Um, With the secondary outcomes, again, that focused on some of the maternal things, um, there were no maternal deaths, and there was no difference overall, um, but these serious events that they were looking for were overall actually very rare. In terms of the less severe events, the frequency of severe hypertension, so again, the number of times or the incidence of seeing a severe range blood pressure was higher in the less tight control group than in the tight control group. Um, And that was at a clip of we saw that 40.6% of the time in patients with the less tight group versus 27.5% in the tightly controlled group. Um, There also were higher rates of abnormal labs consistent with severe preeclampsia in that less tight control group. There were more frequent rates of thrombocytopenia as well as liver enzyme elevations. However, these did not meet the pre-specified limit for statistical significance. So even though if you look at the table from the paper, um, it was 4.3% in the less tight control group that had platelet counts consistent with thrombocytopenia or elevated liver enzymes, and then 1.6% for platelets and 1.8% for uh, liver function abnormalities in the tight control group, and even though those odds ratios there are about 2.5 for both of them, because that p-value didn't meet that pre-specified condition, um, those technically are not statistically significant. So again, kind of confusing in looking through this paper, but is an interesting difference to note. So I think that we've talked through all of the things that the CHIPS trial has looked at, Faye. what did these authors kind of tell us our takeaways from the paper should be?
0: Yeah, so based off all of those results and all of those analyses, the authors concluded that in terms of, you know, from the infant side, tight versus less tight control of maternal hypertension resulted really in no significant difference in the risk of adverse perinatal outcomes in terms of, you know, perinatal death, in terms of fetal size. None of those things were different. And then on the maternal side, Less tight control did not significantly increase the risk of overall serious maternal complications. And while there was a more significant rate of severe hypertension and markers of severe preeclampsia, they didn't actually meet the study's threshold for significance, um, which was admittedly very challenging with that p-value uh, where it had to be less than 0.001 because of um, all of the interim analyses and all the different types of analyses that they did. You know, I think interestingly from this paper is that This paper did dictate how we treat hypertension and allow for, you know, less tight control as kind of the dominant paradigm in the United States and how we practice, especially in chronic hypertensives. So in most places, treatment of hypertension prior to more significant values consistent with severe blood pressure is not really performed. Um, And really, gestational hypertension is not typically treated unless, you know, you have severe range pressures as a result. Um, And nowadays, that's actually classified as severe preeclampsia. I think, you know, one question that I have right now kind of off the bat, Nick, is how does this kind of affect, number one, what we do? And I'd love to hear kind of what you guys do in fellowship because I know what we did in residency um, and how this affects preeclampsia treatment as well.
1: Obviously, these were technically not statistically significantly different based on the way these analyses were. But when you look at that table and even though the numbers are small, you see like a know, 2.6-fold increased incidence of thrombocytopenia, 2.3-fold increased incidence of liver enzyme dysfunction, a 4.3-fold increased incidence of HELP syndrome, um, and then a exposure to severe hypertension that's 1.8-fold more in that less tight control group, even though those weren't quote-unquote statistically significant, um, they sure seem like they're clinically significant. Um, absolutely. just, again, these are very, very small numbers. So part of the limitation and part of the reason for ultimately CHAP, which we'll get into was to really try and delineate this a little bit more and to see if there were any other sort of, um, bad things for lack of a better word that come out of tighter control of blood pressure. Um, you know, in residency, I think We sort of grew up with this being our paradigm, um, with permissive hypertension in folks with chronic hypertension until they started approaching those severe ranges or kind of like, I don't know, we didn't really have a defined threshold, but if they're like 150 over 100, we might consider bumping their blood pressure medicines up or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we really didn't treat gestational hypertension at all until they... Ended up with severe range blood pressures, and then it was about treating them. And then in the later portion of our residency, we treated those patients as having severe preeclampsia, too. You know, it's been interesting for me in changing locations because at uh, UW, um, again, giving away a little bit of what we do that's different, it's very aggressive. Um, and they kind of read in more towards this analysis of chips of saying we should treat that severe or we should treat that hypertension before it becomes severe so treat the chronic hypertension treat the gestational hypertensive all the hypertension get it down and get it down now mm-hmm. um yep. what do they do over a pen Faye
0: Yeah. So I think, you know, originally Penn was very much like our residency training where we had this permissive hypertension, unless, you know, you were chronic hypertensive and you're approaching the 150s, for example. And in gestational hypertension, we kind of try and see if they will blossom into severe preeclampsia before we do any type of treatment. I do think that there's probably a little bit more, uh, changes in practice now that CHAP has come out for chronic hypertension specifically. Um, And I will say, you know, I think one of the things that this paper itself doesn't answer, and I think the reason for the CHAP trial, is that it kind of lumps together chronic hypertension and gestational hypertension, right? And I think ultimately the two processes are kind of distinct diseases, in in my mind at least. Chronic hypertension, you come in and you already have this issue. Gestational hypertension, you kind of develop this issue. And so I I think one of the things that, you know, didn't make sense to me coming away from this paper specifically was to say, well, how can we treat chronic hypertensives and gestational hypertension exactly the same way? Should they be treated a little bit differently? And, you know, like I said, I think while this – Data does provide some reassuring data that tighter and less tight control paradigm doesn't seem to adversely affect birth weight. I do think that this ultimately paved the way for that CHAP trial to be like, okay, what do we do for actually if you're if you just have chronic hypertension?
1: Yeah. So Again, we're going to review CHAP in a future podcast for you listeners out there, but as a preview, CHAP seems to favor more tight control, Um, so you guys may already be exposed to a little bit of a new strategy with respect to treatment of at least chronic hypertension at your institution, or I'm sure if that hasn't happened, it is incoming for you. Um, But before we get carried away, um, let's try and summarize CHIPS, Faye.
0: Sure. So just as some background information, we first said that this was a multi-center international randomized controlled trial uh, that took place in many, many different countries and was done at the time because there was a question of do we more tightly control high blood pressure, or can we have less tight control, and what were going to be
1: the outcomes? Subjects were recruited from 2009 to 2012 at 95 sites in 16 countries with hypertension defined as non proteinuric hypertension or gestational hypertension, with pre-existing hypertension diagnosis prior to 20 weeks and gestational hypertension after 20 weeks. They utilized the diastolic blood pressure to define that hypertension and classically with our diagnosis, needed to have two blood pressures four hours apart or at two consecutive clinic visits. They excluded patients who had severe blood pressures, proteinuria, or use of certain medications, and then other things that are common to trials, such as medical contraindications, multiple gestation anomalies, and previous participation in the trial.
0: Again, this was a randomized trial so that half of the patients would be randomized to less tight control, which they defined as a target diastolic blood pressure of 100 or lower, versus tight control with a target diastolic blood pressure of 85 or lower, with a goal of having an in-between group difference of 5 millimeters of mercury in that diastolic blood pressure. The trial did recommend labetalol as the first drug of choice, but ultimately did not actually provide any medications. Ultimately, this was up to the physician that was taking care of the patients, though they did say that there were certain medications that were not permitted prior to delivery. Um, They did adhere to a certain type of protocol where they would actually take the average of the second and third diastolic blood pressures as the actual diastolic blood pressure that they were going to target. Um, And then they were going to assess these patients within four weeks of randomization and continue to monitor their blood pressures. And thereafter, they were also given a questionnaire six
1: weeks postpartum. And the primary outcome focused on fetal and neonatal severe complications. The secondary outcome primarily was related to severe complications of maternal disease. And then finally, there were some other outcomes that were analyzed, um, including fetal growth newborn complications, incidence of severe hypertension in the mother. Shout out to those of you who are listening in our statistics brains. We'd love to hear from you about some of the statistics interestingness with this paper as the p-values were defined based on a number of analyses that they did as well as interim analyses for safety. So it's not p equals 0.05 as the level of significance. It depended on the analysis that they did.
0: Ultimately, they were able to recruit approximately 500 uh subjects per group in the less tight and the tight control of their blood pressures. Ultimately, they did see a average difference of about 4.6 millimeters of mercury of difference in that diastolic blood pressure. Um, and then in terms of when they looked at outcomes, they saw that primarily there was no difference in that neonatal composite outcome. Uh, Importantly, they also saw that there was no significant difference with respect to other perinatal outcomes, things like small for gestational age, less than the 10th percentile or less than the 3rd percentile, which, again, was a concern from previous studies, or any rate of respiratory complications in terms of their secondary outcomes for maternal outcomes, overall there was no difference in things like maternal deaths um, and there was no statistical significance in certain serious events. But if we actually look a little bit closer, despite those small numbers, there did seem to be Some differences if we look at the adjusted odds ratio of things like thrombocytopenia, elevated liver enzymes, elevated LDH level, and elevated HELP syndrome. But again, this was not statistically significant.
1: From the study, the authors concluded that tight versus less tight control resulted in no difference in adverse perinatal, fetal, neonatal outcomes, and less tight control didn't significantly increase the risk of serious maternal complications. However, Critics of the study might point to some of those things that Faye just mentioned as tight control potentially being superior. It's interesting that CHIPS has dictated how we treat hypertension and allowed for less tight control as the dominant paradigm in U.S. practice. Um, But as we described, there are a number of ways that folks are treating hypertension across the country, some more permissive, some more aggressive. We're going to talk in a future podcast about the CHAP trial and sort of some of the things that folks are thinking about with respect to tighter control, specifically of chronic hypertension. Again, this study treated both gestational and chronic hypertension. As Faye mentioned, thought to be kind of different disease processes, and so potentially different treatments should be considered. Um, again, all for the future. I think that does it for today. Once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creog's Over Coffee.
0: Guys, if you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and go into your favorite podcatcher on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play. Give us a five-star rating and
1: review. You can find us online on Twitter at Craig's Over Coffee 1, on Instagram and Facebook at Craig's over Coffee. Or if you love the show, head over to patreon.com slash Coffee. Send us some love. We'll send you some swag.
0: You can find show notes for this show and all of our other episodes on our website, as well as the Rosh View question of the week. That will be at www.creeagsovercoffee.com.
1: And finally, if you have a question for us, a correction to this or any of our previous episodes, or seriously, if you know about statistics and can tell us anything about this, please email us, createexervercoffee at gmail.com.